listener, and welcome to That Implementation Science Podcast, the show that aims to reduce the innovation to implementation gap to 16 and a half years. I'm your host, Mike Pullman, and on today's show, co-host Kevin King and I will talk with Pedra Kladinja about agile science and just-in-time adaptive interventions, and stay tuned to hear a few of Pedra's critiques of the field. I want to send a quick trigger warning that we will discuss the subtle art of turd polishing. Along the way, we will quiz Pedro with several trivia questions about bikes, so stick around to play along. If you want to talk with us, we're on Twitter. I'm at ThatISPodcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore psych. I think you're really going to like today's show. Without further ado, let's get started. everyone welcome to that implementation science podcast we are here today with Pedja Klasinja. Pedja is an associate professor of information at the school of information at the university of michigan he also uh, works closely with me and others at the university of washington optics center and the impact center it used to be the kaiser permanente impact center now is the university of washington impact center so i'm calling it you wimp i don't know if anybody else there is you go you whack and you wimp that's right Petra studies mobile mental health, human-computer interaction, and implementation science. So some of the buzzwords you may uh, have heard associated with Petra include things like agile science, micro-randomized trials, just-in-time adaptive interventions, and causal pathway diagrams. We hope to talk about some of those today. So, Pedra, Kevin and I like to say that uh, this podcast is about two people who don't really know very much about implementation science that are interviewing people who know a lot about implementation science. Uh, And half of the reason we're doing this whole thing is so that we can avoid having to read journal articles and just rather have people tell us the information instead. Uh, But you're actually not an implementation scientist, is that correct? Exactly. I was going to say you you have a wrong guest in that case because I probably... Um, I not claim to know anything about implementation science. I get roped into it uh, thinking it would be one side project, but I'm still here a few years later. So at some point, I'll need to learn some, a little bit about it. But uh, so I'm not sure how much of help I'll be for, for that particular matter. Well, thanks a lot, um, everyone. This has been Pedja. We're uh, super happy to have you on the show. I hope you enjoyed and learned nice a lot you both. Uh, today. So it was great to meet you. Um, yeah, and best wishes. How, so how did you find yourself kind of in this field? Like, how did you get roped into it? Good question. So about uh, 2016 and 2017, I was on a leave from Michigan. I was at Kaiser in Seattle. And uh, Kara Lewis walked into my door one day and said, uh, I hear you do these optimization trials. We should do something together. And I said, all right, let's, let's sit and talk. And so we started writing grants together. And she brought in uh, Aaron and you and Shannon. And uh, originally, I think we wrote one grant that that was the first submission of what is now the Mechanism R01 that uh, Brian Weiner is on and uh, Byron Powell and a bunch of other people. That didn't go anywhere. I think it took us five tries to, to finally get that funded. But uh, in any case, she kept coming back to write more grants with, that, with me. And uh, she's a fantastic uh, networker. So I got to meet a lot of really cool people like you, Mike. 
And uh, so what I thought would be one side project ended up being uh, about at this point, maybe 30, 40% of my work. And which means that at some point I do need to learn something about implementation science. Uh, and I, 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 I've been uh, sort of pretending to be an outsider for long enough, but uh, at this point, I guess it's been five, six years. I should learn a little bit. I have to be honest, it's a really, it's a really adaptive strategy in academia to pretend like you know nothing. Uh, I, I want to say Shannon Dorsey joined the faculty at, at UW in our clinical program. And uh, no joke, for the first 10 years, she would introduce every comment with, well, I'm just new here and I don't really quite know what's going <laughs> that's on. Awesome. Here's what I think. So when it comes to implementation science, uh, that's pretty much, I, I always say, I'm outsider of the field, but uh, here's what I think. And usually that pisses someone off. Uh, with, uh, yesterday was uh, Byron Powell that I upset a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah, well, how did how did you upset Byron? <laughs> we have a, a grant that again took about five five times to get that aims to develop these little micro theories of of uh, common implementation strategies. And so we've been going through through a bunch of these where we sort of develop causal pathway diagrams for them and try to to, to synthesize the literature about what the strategy actually is and how it works. And so Byron was presenting one yesterday, which was on tailoring strategies, I think is the name of the strategy. And I think he's been involved in some of these uh, initiatives around systematizing strategies and so on. And I basically said, this is not a strategy. Like, why, why are we why are we doing this? And, uh, and it's, I think at one point I... I Said something like, "We should stop polishing turds in the in the field, and to make to make them just a little bit more shiny." And he gets very upset. But but uh, the point is that, like you you know, if you're a, a you know infectious disease doc and you're giving people antibiotics, choosing which antibiotics to give, antibiotic to give, and at what schedule is not an antibiotic. It's it's a part of treatment, but it's not it's not the same thing as. And so, I was arguing this is not a strategy, and there was some pushback. Yeah. I want to come back to this idea of polishing the turd, um, because it sounds like you have a general critique of the field here, and I'm just interested in hearing more. If I heard you right, you said something like, we can't just keep polishing turds in this field and you know hoping for better outcomes. I'm probably putting some words in your mouth, but I, I'm honest, I'm really curious. Like, what do, you, what do you see the field doing that you get frustrated by when you think about that? Oh, God. All right. So here we go. The since we are on the topic of upsetting other people, I think one of one of the things that, and partly why I've sort of stayed peripheral uh, so far, um, that that I've had a really hard time with is this notion that instead of theorizing, we create just frameworks, which are basically just lists, laundry list of things, and we we sometimes put those laundry list in some small buckets, but but uh, I, I think that there is just a need for a lot more careful conceptual thinking about how things are working. And, 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 and part of the reason that, that I'm continuing to stay involved is that these projects that I'm involved in are very much trying to do that, right? But, but I think sort of this, this shift from just classifying everything into, into buckets to, to actually trying to understand how something is working and having some precision around that, I think is really needed. Uh, and, um, and some of, and part of that might involve that actually saying that, that in this particular case, that facilitating the, the tailoring strategies is not a strategy. Like we, there's some, if you, if you add conceptual clarity, sometimes it means actually getting rid of some of the, some of the constructs that, that, that the field has had. So, so in a way it's a, um, I think if I'm hearing you right, you're arguing that we, we need more sort of theoretical development around constructs and measures 
um, or at least about at least about constructs, like sort of what is a thing, what isn't a thing. How do we know if if we're talking about the same thing? Is that is that what you're saying? I, I or are you talking so. about something different? Yeah, constructs and and I would say processes. And, it, and mm-hmm. certainly, you know, precision around measures comes as as a as a way of of, of getting precision around constructs. Mm-hmm. But trying to understand what is actually happening at a, at a finer grain mm-hmm. level, so so mm-hmm. that we can you know have an account of how how change happens, right? right. That, that a lot more of that is needed. Right. So it's, yeah, so I, I see. So it's both, I think about this from the measurement perspective a lot, even though I haven't done mm-hmm. work on this perspective. Like when, when we measure something, we are also measuring a process. We're not just measuring something static. We give somebody a survey, sure. mm-hmm. they see the items, the items are a stimulus. They're making a choice between slightly agree and strongly agree, right? They're choosing between those buckets and that there's some sort of process that's going on in their head, right? This has been talked about for decades in the measurement mm-hmm. literature, although not often yep. taken seriously. And you're talking about both you know, this is something that's thought about in implementation a lot when we're asking just how does it work, right? What's the process that's actually unfolding in the real world? Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, I think it's important that it's, it's also difficult in our field because uh, I, I, to my mind, at least understanding all of the pieces that we're sort of wanting to throw into, whether it's, you know, an implementation uh, intervention, or whether it's any understanding any scientific process, a lot of times we know parts of that really, really well. So we have a really good sense of what we think is happening. But then also we're often bringing in mm-hmm. measures or constructs or, or settings that are way outside of our expertise. You know, you might be applying something in a brand new field, like maybe you're doing something in cancer treatment. And it's like, you don't know anything about cancer, but you know a lot about how people make decisions about treatment. And mm-hmm. I, I just, I just, I'm just reflecting that that's always one of the struggles is really, is sort of getting a sense of, uh, I guess, let me, let me restate that. One of the struggles is like, we, we often want shortcuts. We just want to say, oh, somebody else yeah. understands this. And so I'm just going to trust what, what, they, what they do. And I think it's a challenge to push back against that. No, I, I think that's right. And the, the, field is incredibly complex in terms of the, the settings in which these initiatives happen, in terms of the complexity of the initiatives themselves. So the range of contextual factors, organizational factors, and all of these things, in addition to, to actually expertise on the, on the health condition that is being addressed, uh, it's, there's no question that this is hard. Um, and that said, I think, I'm not sure that we, that, that what I'm arguing for is that the you need that level of clarity at, at, for every single project. But over time, hopefully, the discipline can start moving towards um, to, to extracting some more general principles of how things are happening across projects. So, so we we move to to something that is more, uh, sort of, I guess, functional accounts in nature versus just categorization. Maybe that's that's what it is. That it's really thinking about not just naming things, but but really trying to understand what, what is the process that is happening at, at whatever level we can get to. I do feel like it's pretty standard for any relatively new field or science to begin with taxonomies and classification. Yeah. This is true in biology. It's true in any, any area. And, yep. and even, and I, actually, biology is a kind of a nice analogy because, you know, there are certain classifications that after decades of study, people determine are no longer the correct classification. Sure. Yep. And maybe it's sometimes that the classification definition has changed, or maybe sometimes it's the understanding of how a certain species evolved to reach there, you know, mm-hmm. uh, impacts what whatever their expression was, and that's that's changed the classification. And I think that's really where you're getting to, is that so far we've been doing a lot of taxonomies, a lot of classifications.
communication and trying to define things and operationalize them. But once we really start thinking about how they interact and work together, that may that, that model that we've been using to sort of define them has changed as well, right? Um, so this example you brought up earlier about sort of what's an intervention strategy versus uh, or implementation strategy versus what's an intervention and how those two together may uh, depend not so much even on how one or the other may kind of look in the real world uh, as much as how one or the other functions in the world. And um, and those that's are right. that's that's, yeah. a, that's a diff more difficult step to reach, you know, and a more difficult thing I think to to begin to to um to categorize yeah and i think to, to your point about uh the taxonomy sometimes having either being abandoned or changing as as the, the functional understanding grows uh i do think we're we're slowly starting to move in that direction with implementation science so so in a number of these uh, strategies that we're mapping out as part of this r01 it looks like similar mechanisms are at play Right, and so potentially, I think we can see the future five to ten years from now, where really we're sort of defining things that need to be done in respect to this, the mechanism that needs to be uh, activated. And it's possible that that takes many forms. Some of these forms are going to get uh, sort of branded and, and packaged in certain ways. Others are going to be more fluid. But the understanding of what is happening is going to be less determined by the form that is being provided and more by by what what it is that we're actually trying to accomplish mm -hmm. and how. And so, so, but I, I do think that's the direction in general where we should be moving. Awesome. Well, I mean, this has been one of the best uh, experiences of polishing turds that I've, I've ever had. There you so, go. <laughs> thank you for this. And I still can't get, you know, Kevin's image earlier of polishing turds and putting words in your mouth. So the two things just, you know, <laughs> difficult for me. As I so say often, Mike, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, so sorry. <laughs> Um, hey, so I realized we forgot something that's super important, uh, is that we needed a name for our podcast, and I'm really curious if you have any ideas of what we should call this thing. Well, given the discussion we've just had, uh, one option would be a INET podcast, which is, it's not all terrible, right? There's a, there's a metaphor <laughs> for the field, so, or if, if you want a, you know, a more positive version, you can go with IROX, which is implementation rocks. Wow, nice, nice. But I like that. I, I like that. It's like not to, to the to the first uh, to the first uh, name. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, um, so some of the areas that you've been really working in, I'd love to talk with you a little bit about the, in particular, uh, agile science. And mm -hmm. I wonder for those people who aren't familiar with it, if you could sort of just give a brief overview of kind of what agile science is, why it's important to you, and how does it distinct from other things like human-centered design, yeah. implementation science, quality assurance, quality improvement, program evaluation, which, you know, all of these things have a lot of things in common. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so... Agile science is something that my colleague, Eric Eckler, who is now at uh, University of California, San Diego, and I have been working for a few years to, to try to basically come up with a set of principles that would help structure. We initially were thinking of it in terms of intervention sciences, but uh, it, I think there is a, a broader uh, take here around basically early formative work and early evaluations of, of things that were the, that, uh, the interventions that we're designing. And the idea here was that we basically, uh, we wanted to optimize accumulation of evidence as well as accumulation of useful products. And so, so the, the question was how, how to do this early work. So uh, most of our work was in the, in the context of mobile health interventions. So to how to develop mobile health interventions where we can start learning things that are actually transferable from one project to another. 
as well as build as part of this, because there is a sort of technology development part of all of this, build things that 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 can transcend the life cycle of a single project, right? So so that, that you actually are not just constantly throwing technology away when the grant is over, which is what happens most of the time, but but actually uh, be able to accumulate not just not just knowledge, but also some real stuff that can then be used um, going forward. And and basically, what we ended up doing is thinking of this as a uh, as a system that that combines elements of user centered design in, in relation to things like ideation and sort of quick quick iteration through through uh, um, prototypes with some of the work that, that Linda Collins has been doing in, in, in optimization uh, to, to basically c- come up with a set of studies that, that are each intended to help solve a particular, to basically uh, allow a person to make it uh, the, the next decision. And so the whole thing is set up as a, as a way of supporting decision-making through the life cycle of a, of a project, optimizing for both reusable knowledge and reusable products. And what we, what we end up with is a um, this emphasis on on, at least in the context of these mobile health interventions that we have been developing, um, focus on individual components as a sort of analytical units. So, so when you're when you're sort of deploying a, uh, a system, in, a lot of my work is in the context of physical activity and, and, and weight management, right? So, so we like it, like an implementation where we develop intervention packages, right? So you de- you develop an app that has a bunch of components. There's goal setting and there's feedback and there's planning and there's there's sort of activity suggestions and so on and often it's sort of you you're you can try to optimize the whole package and a lot of the work that Linda has been doing in, in, in with most is around experimental designs that, that will help you decide which of these features you actually need to to maximize effectiveness and minimize cost and so on but the problem is that that if you just do that uh, next time someone is trying to do an intervention, it's really unclear what do you take from the previous from the previous project, right? And so part of what we what we've been arguing for is that you, what you want to be doing is studying individual intervention components, and so we can we can sort of try to understand how does, for example, goal setting work in the context of physical activity, right? What are the variations that that, that are meaningful to test? In what context and with what populations we can test those various variations, so that you can actually start accumulating evidence around modules. That, that can both be technologically developed, right? So that there can be a, a goal setting module that someone else can then use in their own, own system, as well as sort of evidence that corresponds to those modules. So you can you can actually say, okay, if I'm if I'm trying to support patients following cardiac rehabilitation, right, who, who are living in somewhat rural environment, this this is the how you actually want to do goal setting for, for physical activity, because that we we found that you know variation that 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 uh, adapts the goals in this particular way versus that way is actually more effective in this population, right? And so you can actually just take off off the shelf piece then and say, I'm just going to plop it into my, my, into my system and then move on to, to answer other questions that they have about this, right? So, so it's really about modularization across different levels, both modularization of evidence that we can actually start building evidence for individual behavior change techniques, right? And, and, and both in terms of how, how they, they work in certain populations and also sort of what are the various variations and what are the, the, the implications of, of, of providing, let's say, a gradually increasing step goal versus one that, that varies a fair bit from day to day, right? Part of that, that means sort of having some, some user-centered design around generating these various variations, trying to understand sort of which of these variations are theoretically interesting to study. 
And then having uh, optimization trials, and this is where so Windows work on, on most comes in, that that help you actually develop trials that, that can that can provide the evidence for for these techn- uh, particular modules that are being fielded. And so so it's a sort of optimization at multiple levels, both optimization of evidence as well as optimization of systems that we're developing. Can I jump uh-huh. in with a question, Claire? Because I guess I'm just curious on the statistical part of this, the evidence accumulation part. Because when he, I mean, this is also amazing, by the way, super cool. And like, I love the ideas um, here. And I, I, I guess the frame that I'm think coming from is most of the trials that I have seen in implementation are pretty small. You don't have that many people in them relative to like the kind of work I do where we collect hundreds of people and run them through EMA mm-hmm. protocols or yeah. get thousands of people for surveys, you know, at the epidemiological level, right? A lot of clinical trials are really small. How do you think about the evidence accumulation and make sort of concrete decisions about what we think is working versus what we think is not when you always have this challenge of statistical power? So I'm just curious, yeah. how do you approach that? How do you think about that? So just just to be clear, most of this work that we've done, we have done on the mobile health side of things, not implementation science end of things, right? And so where we can actually get enough people, right? right. But But power also... It, especially if you're actually starting to think about power in relation to individual components, it will look it will look different, right? So if you're uh, if you're baseline randomizing something, then then basically you you calculate power the same way you would for a two arm study, right? In, in the context of something like a factorial experiment, you still need a lot of people. But for example, many of the components that we're interested in are components that change over time, and so in which case we might use something like a micro-randomized trial. As a, as a as a experimental design to to study these things, in which case the power ends up ends up being that the in terms of the number of people that you need ends up being substantially lower. Although you you will need more mm-hmm. time, right? So so for example, the very first study that we that we did using micro randomized trials, there were two components in a in a physical activity intervention that we were studying. One was this sort of daily planning prompt, basically implementation intentions mm-hmm. that that, uh, that that asked people to plan how they would be active on the following day. And the other one were these highly contextually tailored suggestions to, uh, that, that were supposed to encourage people to go for a walk in the near term after the suggestion is delivered, right? And so for, for the suggestions, we were randomizing that five times a day. So each person in the study for the duration of the study was randomized five times a day whether to receive the suggestions or not. And when you actually look at the power that's needed for something like that, we needed something like 28 people to be fully powered. to right. actually because you have tons it. of repeated Because you, know, you can tons of, of that, repeated right. Yeah, observations, right? So, so right, right. Uh, even in a, in a six-week study, you were looking at over 200 data points per person, right? right. For for uh, planning, you have 42 data points per person, right? So it's, so even there, we, with 40 people, we were fully powered to actually study the effects of the of, of the of planning. So I think uh, so. That's that's one way you, you can you can think about power. The other the other way that we've been doing more recently is trying to think about what is what is the setting where we can ask at least some of the initial questions and get some of the initial evidence. In a in a resource efficient ways, and so uh, a student of mine, for example, has been really interested in different types of, of displays, and especially feedback displays for providing uh, physical activity feedback on smartwatches, right? Mm-hmm. And again, the, the question is like you can actually generate a lot of different variations of, of these displays to to just physically develop. 16 variations, if you, you know, of, of a display and then, then deploy it, you would both in terms of resources for the development as well as resources for, for just getting the people to, to, to run that study, it's just not doable, 
right? And so we've been running web experiments. And then mm-hmm. you can run a mechanical Turk experiment with, with 300 people, have a four factorial experiment across you know, three factors and actually get data that, that is at least for, for some of these initial questions around perception, right? Mm-hmm. Meaningful. If your causal model is that, that this process you can study in, 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 in simulation, then, then that's, that's another way to, to deal with power, right? At some point, you have to move things into the field, but that doesn't need to be the first study. Right. That's smart. And it seems like you're also taking advantage mm. of this idea of the random effects experiment. Um, I, I probably am getting the term sure. wrong, but yep. right, it's this idea that's been floating around. Um, and it sounds like you've been doing it earlier than I've seen sort of a lot of people take advantage of it, where basically instead of one experimental stimuli you pick, you sort of are actually exposing people uh, to a whole variation of things that are supposed to represent maybe the same construct. Or in your case, you might be sort of deciding like which is the best, but you think they're all intended to do the same thing, but there may be sort of, you're able to, you know, measure the, the strength of, of these different ones. So it, it, you know, it's, that's also kind of a, I just want to point out that's a cool facet of what, of the things you're talking about um, is that when you do these repeated measures experiments, you can, again, just expose people to a whole bunch of different stimuli. Right. And and both you can get a median effect, right? As on average, right. when we expose right. people to this, you know, uh, screen, for example, what what does it work? But then also, yeah, how what works better than others? And that that may be too in the you know too much in the methodological weeds for a lot of our audience. But I I just think that's a really cool thing that you're you're talking about. A really cool design Another feature. Yeah. Aspect of that, that that is really important when it comes to these interventions that that actually people use, like mobile health interventions that they use throughout the day is actually what the, these kinds of study designs also help you look at contextual moderation, right? right? So you can actually have time varying moderation effects where you can see that that uh, certain kinds of interventions work better, for example, when the person is at home versus when they're at work or mm-hmm. after, you know, based on the dosage of other things they can receive in the past. So, so there's a lot of granularity that you can, uh, of evidence that you get by just, just randomizing things repeatedly across different contexts and then looking at how, how the, the effects are interacting with the situation that the person is in. Yeah, cool. I, and the final thought I had just about the power and what, when you're talking about the modularity, uh, of things, it also seems like you could use the evidence you gather across all these different contexts. Whether it's your initial, you know, it's an MTurk study to sort of see, okay, is there any plausibility to it? You know, when we sort of get tons of people, or also even just sort of saying, okay, we have this module we've developed and people have adapted it now in five or mm-hmm. six different implementation trials. You know, it seems like you could use a meta-analytic perspective or even a Bayesian perspective where you sort of say, okay, how much is our prior changing, you That's know, exactly as right. we gather evidence and, and and sort of you can, you know, in other words, you can use it to build off of rather than starting from zero and saying, okay, do we, when we run our models, do we see a couple of stars next to our p-value or not? That, that, that seems that's really exactly cool. That right. modularity that's, buys you that. And that's really the vision, right? That, that mm-hmm. if you actually go down from the level of a full intervention package to individual components, then you can do those kinds of things. You can actually say, okay, so, so for this kind of component across the studies that we've seen, the confidence in, in it working in this way versus that way it increases. So, so you can very much use Bayesian techniques to move the, the evidence to, towards more to the higher levels of confidence. Does that mean then you have to convince the whole field to become Bayesians for you to really be successful in this? Because that seems like a pretty <laughs> high bar <laughs> to get to. <laughs> I don't think that's a prerequisite, right? I mean, I, I think that's the um, some some of these sort of additional 
uh, ways of synthesizing evidence, I think, will emerge. But I, I think even just just doing the kinds of studies that we have traditionally done in terms of in terms of how how the data are are, are uh, analyzed would still allow some some transfer of knowledge from one project to another, right? Because if you're not you don't necessarily need to take my whole intervention and deploy it in another in another population. You need to say, okay, given given that my population is similar in this or that way to to these other studies that were done, and in all of those studies, this particular form of goal setting seemed to be effective. It's it's reasonable for me to to try to use that form of goal setting in my, in my next project as well. So I think in terms of if you sort of again think of it in terms of decision making, that's partly what we're trying to do is is to also allow for more informed decisions for future projects that that that, that really build on a on a more solid foundation than just sort of running massive meta analysis across into call intervention packages mm -hmm. literature. Cool. Yeah, I guess I'm trying to sort of. Um... I might be missing something here, but when I think about sort of knowledge accumulation and hearing what you're describing, some of it sounds kind of similar to the distillation and matching method, which you're probably familiar with, uh, um, Bruce Tropita's work around, you know, synthesizing the lit research literature to find what's effective mm -hmm. across a wide variety of different um, uh, different disorders, so depression, common, yep. super common disorders, depression, anxiety, et cetera, and then, um, and then building these into sort of component-based uh, interventions where mm -hmm. they know which component are effective for which diagnoses and uh, clinicians are delivering them and able to sort of track those delivery, track that delivery over time and uh, match it to the uh, use improvement or not, and then change the components like in a, in a sort of a real-time basis. That's my understanding. I may be wrong, but also though, it sounds like you're adding a knowledge accumulation on top of that, I'm, I'm, although maybe I misunderstood mm -hmm. this, where you're talking about within within person knowledge accumulation as well uh, for the individual person who's going through, or is that is that not right? Yeah, so, well, there's there are several things going on, I think, and, 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 and I can, let me come back to the in, within person issue, because there, there's part of the reason why we're actually doing these microanalysis experiments is to allow for within person uh, sort of learning as well. But but at the level of of you just if we just think about sort of the field right and and what what you can, what you can learn in in intervention sciences also leaving implementation aside like you know Susan Mikic has been doing meta analysis of the of let's say you know interventions for 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 physical activity and, and weight management and what you get is that things like the the findings from there are that self monitoring is really effective goal setting is really effective right um, you get you get some. Uh, um, the question, though, is like with any intervention science, is like how in any given project, how do you actually operationalize those those techniques, right? And there, and when it comes to technological implementations, there are a lot of design choices to make, right? And so, so the level of just saying self monitoring is useful doesn't really help me very much about how to how to provide self monitoring, right? And so, partly what we're trying to do is is get at a slightly lower level of, of, of or higher level of detail, I guess, in terms of the various variations at which these, these particular techniques can be can be deployed and, and what are the differences in effectiveness in those in those variations, right? So so and that can be both variation in terms of how the whole thing looks, right? As well as the variations in, in sort of the dynamics of provision. Knowing that that planning is effective for, for increasing steps is great. But how often do I need to provide planning? Should I do it every day? Should I do it a couple of times a week? Right? Are there because uh, there, there are differences in terms of what happens? Right? People get people habituate to prompts. Right? So they they stop responding. 
depending on 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 uh, whether how structured their lives are, planning may be more or less less helpful and so on. And so, partly what we're trying to figure out is like, can we can we get some evidence on those details of implementation and the context or the people for whom various various kinds of implementations seem to make a difference? And I'm not sure that that the kind of synthesis that we've done in the field so far really get to that level. Mm-hmm. Right, so 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 that's that's part of it, um, and and that is again tied to, to being able to actually have some modules that can just be reused because the in sort of the most efficient way to study this stuff is not to have to rebuild it every single time, right? So so part of what we're trying to do is actually build a platform where you can you can have the off the shelf modules for some of these user, uh, commonly used components with a bunch of dials, and you can just sort of say, okay, I'm, I want to configure it in this way or that way. Here's what is known about about the how those dials have been used in the past. And you can sort of try to say, okay, either I want to do a different variations of this or given what is known, this configuration of dials seems to be the best, best option that, that they have for, for the population that I'm, I'm trying to, uh, to support, right? So, so I think the granularity is a little bit different than what you were describing. But the other part is, this, is around uh, this notion of, of sort of uh, learning within a person, right? And so Susan Murphy, who's a close collaborator of mine, has been doing a lot of work on using reinforcement learning algorithms to actually personalize provision of these interventions. So one of the things that you can do with, with the data from micro-randomized trials is actually set the sort of Bayesian priors on how on the, for the policy of how, how these algorithms should work and then adjust that for each individual person, right? So, so then the, the, the system actually starts learning from you know, micro responses versus special responses and adjust the provision to, to maximize the effectiveness for you versus me. Right, and that means it might actually provide the same intervention in different contexts. It might provide it with, with different uh, different dose, right, different frequency. It might turn it off for you altogether, right, or or sort of get it to a really low level if you're if you're not responsive. And so the idea is that that, that you might actually be able to to really learn about how an individual person is responding uh, to to maximize the effectiveness for each person. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the future of the future of uh, science. Obviously, is are these tailored kind of adaptive interventions to how somebody's responding and mobile and digital tech, I think provides an opportunity to do that. That's I think much more difficult uh, from an individual clinician level, although maybe, you know, individual clinicians, when they sort of talk about the art of what they do, that's kind of what they're talking about to some extent is their own sort of knowledge about when to tailor. Although as we know, clinicians are not very good at <laughs> predicting what to deliver when and what's what's most effective. I am kind of reminded a little bit about that uh, classic Dale Carnegie book about how to win friends and influence people. Uh-huh. In the very first chapter, he talks about, I think, you know, he's like, I love cherries, but when I go fishing, I don't put cherries on the hook. I put worms on the hook, right? Because fish love worms, right? And this idea of reinforcement, I think, too, is something that we've maybe not taken as much advantage of in clinical interventions as we need to. Just simple rewards, but rewards tailored to what the individual person wants and what the individual person is responsive to. And, you know, we know that in other, you know, like my RunKeeper app or whatever gives me a badge when I do a run that is longer than a run that I've done before or what what have you. And those things I find silly, but also ridiculously rewarding. I kind of I'm disappointed in myself at how rewarding I find those and how I may go for an additional run because I want a badge, which is silly because yeah. nobody sees that badge because I'm not friends with anyone. And I do I friends with anyone on, uh, well, as Kevin knows, I'm not friends with anyone or I'm also not no, friends I'm with anyone on the RunKeeper app. 
Uh, and I do feel like in clinical treatment, we're, we're missing a lot of that. We're missing a lot of that really like could be automated positive reinforcement for people to help them sort of achieve their own goals and help them along that motivational cycle. Yeah, the, the actual reinforcement for people, it has been a somewhat of a tricky area in mobile health in, in digital interventions, partly because there is a lot of variability in what people find you know, rewarding. And so there, uh, some of the early work that I've done with a colleague of mine from, from Switzerland, um, uh, Catherine Blondon, on, on, on diabetes management using mobile apps. Like, for example, the, the, a lot of these gamification constructs, people with type 1 diabetes did not want to hear about. Like, this is, this is too, too serious of a disease. I, don't, I do not want to turn this into a game. Right. There's sort of, um, we also find that, that sort of what kind of badges people find reinforcing varies a, a, a great deal. And like, I don't respond to any of them. And so, so the, I think the part of the, part of the problem at, at the level of digital interventions is there's just the, the, the space of things that you can provide is relatively limited in any given system. Right. And so you're going to, uh, and so the system can try to learn among the available actions what, what might work for, for, Mike versus me, but it's it's still very much limited to to a set of actions that that the system can can support. In clinical practice, I think it's a slightly different situation because the, one one can actually elicit what what reinforcement what good reinforcement might be in a in much more fluid way. That what when when it comes to these reinforcement learning algorithms, it's actually the algorithm that's being reinforced. It's not the person, right? And in which case, so so that in this case. Right, so so the, so the way that the learning happens is that the, the algorithm itself has a, re, a reward, right? Uh, what in computer science they call a reward, but but it's basically it's a metric of success, right? So so um, for it might be that that uh, for a goal setting algorithm, the metric of success is that the person has met the goal, right? And that's what what the the algorithm is tracking, and based on on the context in which the person is meeting and not meeting goals, based on the level of the goal that is being provided the system will slowly learn how to adjust the goal level in order to, 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 to maximize the goal attainment. But the reward here is really for the algorithm, not for the person. I see, I see. Yep, okay. So I want to, you know, one of the things that you're kind of talking about, but I don't think you've directly talked about, well, maybe you have, but we haven't used these words, this idea of just-in-time adaptive interventions. And it seems like that's a lot of what you're, I mean, that, that is a lot of what you're talking about with these sort of digital yeah. mobile mm-hmm. interventions. As someone who, so my research is in the alcohol field, and I've done a lot of mm-hmm. EMA work, and I, and a lot of what we we argue with our EMA work is, oh, this is going to be perfect for just-in-time adaptive interventions. We'll be able to figure out when somebody's at risk for a heavy drinking episode, and you know, bam, deliver them the the right intervention at the right time for the right person. And you've been doing this in a, in other fields or in, in sort of other scientific domains. Would you tell for, for an outsider like me, what are the things, the mistakes we should pay attention to? What are the warnings that you should, you want to give us? I think, I think you've summarized them well, Kevin, that, that basically the, the goal here is to provide support when the, the support is, is most needed and when the person is most receptive to receiving support, right? And so, and the idea is that what you're trying to optimize is both the, the effectiveness of the intervention itself, as well as the, the sort of receptivity or engagement of the person. So, so you can continue to, to, to support them over time, right? So they don't just, just put the, the system to a drawer and forget about it. A key part here has to do with what's the information that you actually need to be able to to, to provide just-in-time support, right? And so, you know, 
some of Dave Gustafson's early work uh, in, in with, with Jedi to to stick with your with your setting was sort of using geofencing to detect when someone is approaching a bar and then providing mm-hmm. a coping right. suggestion there. Right. Um, what's nice about that that setting is that that. Uh, as long as you can sort of map what, what are the commonly used bars, the actual information is passively generating. Uh, so you're not actually having to, to, to ping a person with an EMA question every 20 minutes to say, are you close to a bar? Are you close to a bar? Right. right? Because whenever you have passive data that, that is meaningful, it really helps with, with creating these kinds of interventions because, because, uh, because the burden on the person stays relatively low, right? Um, there have been a lot of attempts to use EMA data for, for building JEDIs as well. Mm-hmm. You get both a lot of missingness, right? But also yeah. the level of burden then increases substantially, right? right. Massively. In EMA questions that are, that are really sort of observational, EMA studies that are observational studies where EMAs are really sort of how you're getting research data, you can pay people. But in an intervention, you know, it's not sustainable to pay people for on a, on a per, per question basis or per questionnaire basis. And so I think one of the, one of the key issues is, can, you know, can you actually get information that, that is needed to really define what the just-in-time state is? And that often ends up being not, not that simple at all, right? The other one has to do with, with uh, that a lot of these just-in-time interventions, sort of think, taking a, a broader view, are inherently sort of what, what we're referring to as push interventions. So we're sort of mm-hmm. sending something to a person, often through, through a push notification or certain kind of haptic feedback. And the habituation ends up being a huge issue, mm-hmm. right? So, so the, the more you bug people, the less they, they start responding and paying attention to, to, to it. And if, if most of the intervention is really uh, in, the, in the form of, of push notifications, it's really hard to maintain engagement with those with those kinds of interventions, and so part of what we've been trying to think through is sort of how do how do you actually change that experience in a way that that is uh, that allows for these systems to to be effective over over longer periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so so those those are some of some of the big big issues. Um, the other the other part is if you are actually going to be trying so there so the the, some, the notion of just in time adaptive intervention does not require algorithmic decision rules. You can have just just perfectly sort of deterministic decision rules that you write out by hand. If the person is in this situation, do, mm-hmm. do this, or if they're in that situation, do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they get much more, more uh, both complicated in terms of what is actually in, involved in building one of these things, as well as potentially more, more sophisticated and more, more effective if you can actually build in some of these kinds of algorithms like, like reinforcement learning algorithms or, or model predictive control that, that system engineers use. So there is a sort of technical complexity to a lot of this. And, and many behavioral scientists are just not equipped to, to do that. So it ends very quickly becomes sort of a, a big science kind of project where there is really a need for large collaborations where there is expertise on, on computer science side, there is expertise on sort of just software development side, which is like different, right? As well as you need a fair bit of statistical expertise to make sure that whatever the system is doing is actually analyzable after the study mm-hmm. is over, right? right? So, so it becomes very, very hard to do this uh, short of a sort of R01 level of, of funding because there's just too many people that are, that are involved in, in, in building these systems. Or, or, I mean, almost like set grant level. I mean, you, or you know, the, kind of, right, exactly. the kind of problems yeah. you're trying to talk about, right? Every time you see a sort of psychologist psychologist design like website or app or software it's they're terrible right we're I mean, we are you know as a psychologist we're terrible at like graphic design unless we happen to have that talent and 
you know, it's the difference. It always strikes me the difference between the, uh, even like a textbook publisher's website for, I used to teach intro psych, like, and the, the websites they would develop were just, uh, you know, an order of magnitude worse than what Google does or Apple does. And we, you know, people are used to a certain level of design and interactivity. So, I mean, that's just one example of, and I'm sure the textbook publishers have tons of money. And then we're trying to do this on a hire a part-time programmer to develop the interface for our own module. Uh, So yeah, it's a real challenge. Um, The the other, the, the thing you said sort of early on, about passive sensing and the EMA demand. I mean, even when you pay people in EMA, if your EMA is too intensive, too long, they just, some portion of people just stop responding. So it seems like you really, there's a real confound or real um, dilemma in that a lot of, you know, for psychologists, at least a lot of the ways we're thinking about risk and moments of risk for people, whether it's for drinking or whether it's for depression or suicidal ideation or binge eating, we think a lot about psychological factors, which are a real, uh, you know, it's been a real challenge, I think, to model them using passive data. And the thing that's really accessible for passive data are things like contextual factors, like who are you around? How much are you, where are you? But maybe those are very relevant, you know, sometimes, but they just all kind of tend to be not as strong predictors as others. So you sort of, you're facing this challenge of the thing that's easy and low burden is also maybe not such a great predictor. And then I, yeah, I, I don't yeah. even know how to address the other question about people just stop responding to like, that seems yeah. like a real challenge for, for these interventions. Yeah. So, so one direction that, that Susan Murphy uh, has a lot of hope uh, for, for dealing with some of these problems is really building sophisticated predictors of these, right. of, of the states that you actually need, need for, for just in time adaptive intervention. So if you can run a, a, you know, a study with a hundred people with really quite frequent and intrusive EMA and pay the hell out of them, right? To, to, to actually complete it, you might actually be able to, to build some predictors that can then be used in, in the system where the triggering is being done off of the prediction of, of these states. And you only, ask new EMA when your confidence in these predictions gets really wide, yeah, right. right? And so that, so that you're actually trying to, so the, the, the actual state for the algorithm is always just a bunch of predictors. And um, that, that might be one way to, to deal with it. But, but I think this, this broader issue that, that we're often using what is available versus what we actually need is, mm-hmm. is sort of endemic to the field. You know, the first version of, of the steps physical activity intervention on which we started piloting these micro-randomized trials, we have this notion that, that these uh, activity suggestions, really, if you think about theoretically what they're supposed to do, I mean, they're, they're, they're really priming prompts, right? They're supposed mm-hmm. to increase the salience of, the, of, of your commitment to be active. And over time, that should lead to a lot more sort of um, uh, opportunistic physical activity throughout the day and, and so on. But, but we can't get its salience through, through passive sensing. So what we do is we look at your step count in 30 minutes after you, you receive the suggestion. It's a terrible proxy, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it's, yes, there's, there's sort of some, some contextual, I mean, a signal there that, that, uh, that the thing had the near-term impact, but it only has near-term impact if you're not in a meeting or, or recording a podcast, right? So, so if, you're, if I send you a suggestion now and ask you to go for a walk, even if you feel like you're really stiff and you, you could use a walk, you probably will not just walk off, although you might, right? <laughs> um, a big problem with, with these interventions is sort of figuring out how do you actually get to, to, to the constructs that, that the meaningful outcomes of, the, of, these, of, of these provisions of, of intervention components that you can use to, to learn what to do next. Mm-hmm. And often those are, in fact, psychological constructs that you don't have any, any direct uh, access to. 
Right. It's yeah, it's 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 really exciting and it's also a real, I think a real conceptual challenge for the field to move forward. Yeah. yeah. And to, to your point about sort of measurement, uh, we, we're increasingly thinking of these as, as all measurement error issues, mm-hmm. right? So so what what trying to figure out like what are the various indicators that we can have for these latent constructs and think and and trying to to really construct some kind of a latent measure, you know, measure of a latent construct that can be used as, as a as a reward for an algorithm or that, that we can we can predict using a variety of, of different kinds of uh, signals that are both both sort of passively sensed as well as, as sort of elicited through some kind of usable EMA. Right. It, it's been interesting. I've I've been dabbling in the passive sensing literature a little bit in the past few years because we've been collecting it with our um, some of our recent grants. Um, and it's interesting to read uh, some passive sensing literature where they say, you know, we, we verify this objective measure of some psychological construct. And then you read the paper and their gold standard outcome was self-report through the EMA, yeah, which yeah. I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge defender of self-report. I absolutely believe if I ask you how you feel, you're going to, you know, give me at least an impressionistic sense of how you feel. And I should trust that rather than an EEG. But it, but it, the, I, I like your idea of instead of like privileging one kind of evidence over the other, we think of them as all indicators of some, you know, latent construct, something unobservable. And we really try to build our understanding of how, when, and in what context are these, you know, passive indicators related to what people tell us and, you know, vice versa. And how well, if we just have the passive data, how much could we impute what your state might be? You know, um, I mean, that, you know, sort of, those are really fascinating questions. And I think we're just at the beginning of trying to understand understand that, at least in the domains that I'm interested in. Absolutely, absolutely. And there are a lot of really serious technical problems with this stuff as well, yeah. where, you know, that if you read the engineering literature on sensing, they will say, oh, we have this stress classifier that, that was that proved to be you know, 94.5% accurate in cold pressure tests and things of that sort. The moment you put it in the field, it's just complete mess because yeah. the, the sensors move, right? Uh, people, there are three sensors that are necessary. People don't wear half of them most of the time. And so what, what you actually get when you try to deploy these in, in real world con- contexts are, are very different uh, levels of accuracy. Then even if you can sort of trust that the thing is actually sensing what you think it's sensing, mm-hmm. which is which is typically you know, a problem. But even if you can sort of hand wave and say, yeah, this is in fact stress and well, I'll, uh, just the, the the numbers from the lab and the numbers from the wild are wildly different. Yeah, or it's I mean it's as different as you know or a challenge. We we've been using just passive sensing on mobile phones, <laughs> and do they have an iPhone or an Android? And that right. just you know the, right. the amount that that environment those environments are locked down. Um, you, you reminded me of a paper in the field that came out that who I love and I really respect the authors, but it was one of these ones where they said, oh, we could predict whether or not people were engaging in heavy drinking episodes with 96% accuracy. And then you read the paper and they got to 90% by just figuring out, was it a weekend or a weekday and in the evening or in the morning? Because people are mostly exactly. drinking on Friday and Saturday evenings. That's sort of, it's really time-locked behavior. And they got that other 6% from all the passive data. Now I, I'm impressed. 6% is pretty good, but it's a little misleading, I think, to sort of say we got 96% when That's right. you know you could get most of the way there just by asking what time of day and what day is it. Right. And then the question is, like, if you, if you actually need some some intrusive sensing for those extra 6%, is it worth mm-hmm. it, right? Or do yeah, you right. just go by the, by the time of the day and the day of the week? Right. And then do you need all of Yeah. Is it really just in time and adaptive? You're saying at five o'clock, we're going to talk to you about, okay, you might be drinking tonight. What are some strategies you're going to use yep. to avoid having a really bad hangover, you know? Apparently, uh, 
Colorado ski areas have been inundated with 911 calls automatically generated by iPhones from people crashing. And they think <clears> that, you know, somebody's fallen down and hurting themselves, hurt themselves badly. And I guess iPhones now have some automated uh, emergency call yeah. for this. Yeah. 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 Yep. Um, it, interesting though. I mean, I do like your idea, Kevin, of uh, imputing data, but using supplemental data, maybe with a subset of, of people, we're having issues, similar issues, not for mobile, but usage, but for website usage, right? Where when people decide to leave the website, they leave the website, mm -hmm. you no longer can collect data. You don't know why they left the website or anything like this, but you could collect data from a subset of people that you do a lab-based study on that maybe are using your website and you can ask them these questions or collect additional information on and then use that to impute, you know, responses or um, guess, mm -hmm. guess reasons why uh, the people who you collected passively the data on um, may, may have left or not. So all, all really fun stuff. Um, I think we're going to transition now because we're kind of running a little bit low on time, but we'd like to do this pop quiz. Uh, Kevin, do you want to talk about the quiz and in particular talk about like what Pedja may win from the quiz? And then also maybe <laughs> Kevin, can you tell us, has anyone actually taken you up on, on, on this prize yet? Okay. I don't know why you have to undercut my <laughs> the excitement of the quiz prize before I've even offered it. Thanks. Um, so Okay, so I have taken up a habit in the past few years of leaving uh, more specific and hopefully moderately clever out of office messages. And so um, we're gonna uh, provide you with a quiz and depending on your success in the quiz, and I will warn you the scoring is entirely unreliable. There's a tremendous amount of measurement error. It's hard to even know what the scaling is uh, of these um, points. But if you win the quiz, I will write an out of office message for you the next time you're going out of the office. Um, all you have to do is request it. So I can just give you an example to entice you. One of my recent out of office messages was I'm out of office with limited access to email. I'll do my best to reply to your email when I return. And then in brackets, it says auto translate from Google. Kevin and his family are going to Legoland and staying in the castle hotel. It's not clear who is more excited, Kevin or the kids. That is your prize. And I will happily happily write an out-of-office message that is either um, clever or profound or profoundly clever. How about I start with the first question? No, so uh, we understand that you are a cyclist. You At least you enjoy I, cycling. I do enjoy cycling. And, and yes. I have to ask, what kind of cycling? Is it road cycling? Is it, road, you know... Road and gravel. Yeah. Road and gravel, uh, okay. Yeah, a lot of, uh, lot of really good gravel roads in, in this part of the country. So uh, and I like not getting killed by cars. So yeah. getting on gravel roads is uh, isn't... Helpful. Fantastic. All right. So, so this hopefully should be easy to you. What is a cycling technique of getting into the slipstream of another rider? Is it rafting? Is it B, grafting? Is it C, drafting? Or is it D, crafting? You and I know this one. It's C, drafting. Okay. Fantastic. That's well done. Okay. Mike, you can take number two. Very good. Very good. All right. You are one step closer to getting this uh, Kevin King's auto reply in your- Oh, I'm sorry. Your... That was worth 75 points for a correct ah, answer. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> All right. Uh, number two, maybe a little bit harder. What year did women's cycling first feature in the Olympics? Was it A, 1976, B, 1980, C, 1984, or D, 1988? Ooh. In the Olympics, you 76, 80, 84, and 88. Is that, is that what you said? 76, 80, 84, and 88. Right. I mean, the problem is that all of those are Winter Olympics years. Oh, this isn't a trick question. Is that, is that true? <laughs> yeah, because 84 was the was Sarajevo, which is uh, the only one that did. So I, I believe 
just to, I think it's okay to share this. I believe there sometime in the late eighties or early nineties, the winter and summer Olympics started being held in off years. Ah, okay. I, I'm All pretty right. sure. Held in the right. same year. They used in to be held in the same I... year. Ah, okay. I did not realize that. Um, in that case, uh, I'll go with uh, I'll go with 1980. Ooh, I, yeah, ooh, yeah. So wrong. you were you're a very progressive thinker. You're a very progressive thinker. It didn't happen until 1984. For Next. for bonus, any idea of how many years earlier men's cycling appeared than women's? You know, I. I, I'll cycle a lot. I don't actually follow cycling sport very much. So no idea, 92, but I would love to hear. 92 years before Earlier. it took 92 right. years for men's uh, cycle. Or, so men's appeared at 1896, did I do my math right? And women's in 1984. Well, given that last year was the first time there was a tour, for, uh, tour de France for women, that took a little bit longer than 92 years. Wow. Yeah. So just, I have some additional information. According to the internet, um, the first year that we had summer and winter Olympics in different years was 1994 in Lillehammer, Norway. Ah, okay. I did not know that. I did not that either. Cool. I did not recall what, what year it was. I just remember at some point in childhood, uh, we started having Olympics more frequently. Okay, number three. Oh, sorry. Sorry. So you get a um, somewhat Zero disagree. Point. You well, you got somewhat disagree. I'm gonna switch between Likert and continuous scales for this. I might even <laughs> throw a zero inflated one. Okay, so your total is 75 plus a somewhat disagree. Number three. This is the, by the way, true factor modeling, right? You have to accommodate indicators of all different measurement scales. So number three, the type of cycle racing called Kirin originated in which country? Now, this I'll give you the spelling. K-E-I-R-I-N, Kirin, and I might be pronouncing it wrong. I probably Japan. originated in which, okay, well, wow. That is uh, <laughs> nice. plus 75 points, yeah. points for that. That is extraordinary. I was going to give you three. Okay, for extra points, what is Kirin? Kirin is a form of track cycling that uh, basically single speeds the, the bikes on, on a wooden velodrome. And uh, yeah, the, the it's a... It's done in a very traditional way in Japan. There's the it's there's a whole uh, sort of initiation into the into the sport, uh, and very very few non-Japanese uh, cyclists ever actually make it into Kirin. But it's a yeah, it's a form of a track single speed cycling. Wow, that's outstanding! I am going to give you um, a bonus point of a all Ooh. of the time. So I think your current score is 250 minus somewhat disagree and plus and all of the time on a Likert scale. Um, Mike, do you want to go with number four? Yes. And I have a bonus question for number five. Number four is uh, in what year did unicycle racing first appear in the Olympics? Uh, Was it 1924, uh, 1972, uh, 1996, or unicycling has never been an Olympic sport? I want to go say that it was never an Olympic sport, but I would totally believe it if you said 1924, that for a period of time, they actually did this. But uh, I'll go with, with it was never an Olympic sport. Oh, you've done so well. You've done so well. Yeah, three out of four. Three out of okay, four. Three out, well, yeah, so seven, speaking of 75%, um, I think that's enough to win the prize. This last one could Excellent. be a bonus. By the way, you got three points for that answer. So you're at 253 plus a all of the time. Okay, so the last one is who was the Tour de France winner between 1999 and 2005? Who's the official Tour de France winner from 1999 to 2005? Now, you said you don't follow cycling competition, so maybe this is challenging, but... 
official to, to 2005. I mean, was it who was official and then stopped being official or, or, or who remained official? The, um, I, I stated the question and I stand by you it. Stay, <laughs> <you> <laughs> <laughs> I think Lance Armstrong was the, was the official and winner, uh, but I think all of those get stripped off. Wonderful. Uh, that's 3,000 bonus points. That's fantastic. Yes, the correct answer is um, it was Lance Armstrong. He uh, officially was stripped of his title um, and they did not name a replacement winner. I ah, believe, okay. I don't know for sure, but I believe the, the specter of doping was so, the idea was that almost everybody in the peloton <laughs> right. was doping. And so they literally <laughs> exactly. couldn't come exactly. up with somebody. Right. It's probably exaggeration, but you know. That, 154th place was actually right. the true winner. <laughs> there you go. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. There's well, Pedro, you won our, our quiz. You really, uh, that well, was a masterful you. performance. Uh, and so you won the prize. I will happily write an out-of-office message. Next time you need one, just send me an email and give me a little bit of details about you know what your trip is about so I can throw in, sprinkle some, and I'll, I'll send you at least one, if not two options. Excellent. Thank you. Looking forward to that. So curious, Pedro, what are, if you had to give one or two of the most important implementation science publications that you feel kind of budding implementation science researchers should, should spend some time reading, what would those be? You're asking the wrong person. Again, I'm not an implementation scientist, right? <laughs> but but uh, that said, uh, there is a, a recent paper that just came out on the conceptual model and the mechanistic model of, of facilitation that, that Byron sent out, that uh, Amy Kilborn and uh, Shannon was on and Michael Parchment was on, that I think is actually probably... Uh, a really nice example of, of, of the direction I think that the field should be moving in. And the, the paper is called, how is it called? It's called, How Does Facilitation in Healthcare Work? And using mechanistic, uh, mechanism mapping to illustrate the black box of a meta-implementation strategy. And uh, so that, and mostly I, I'm pushing for that one because I, I think it's a, it's a good example of the form of theorizing that, that, that I think we want to, to see more in the field. We'll make sure, by the way, to include that in the show notes for folks who want to follow. Check out that paper. Pedro, do you want to add any shout outs to special people in your work or personal life? No, so many. And so I've, I've been incredibly lucky that most of my work is actually with uh, the broad range of collaborators. And so Susan Murphy uh, has probably been the single most influential colleague that I've had. And that, um, then her work is is fantastic. Eric Eckler's work, I think, has been great. And then my, my the implementation science policy, right? Mike, uh, Byron, Brian, uh, Shannon, and Kara uh, have, have been fantastic. I'm really glad that uh, you guys have put me into this in this area, even in spite of some of the turns that 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 are found <laughs> occasionally <laughs> in, the, in the field. All right, Pedro, this has been such a fun conversation. Uh, I know that, you know, you say you're not an implementation science, but your uh, brain is so massive and you've got so much to add and really help help with the field. And I feel like implementation science is one of those areas that is just um, super porous among many other areas. And we need kind of all of us involved. And so we're so, so lucky to have you. Thank you so much for being part of this podcast. It's been so much fun talking with you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you liked today's podcast, do all the things podcast hosts ask you to do. 
post it on social media, like, subscribe, share it with your friends and implementation science colleagues, or use it to ensnare your non-implementation science methodologist colleagues into the field. If you didn't like today's show, I want to remind you that we do remote sensing interventions. Just because you're paranoid don't mean we're not studying you. If you want to talk to us, we're on Twitter. I'm at ThatISPodcast, and Kevin is at KMKing underscore psych. All of the comments and opinions expressed during today's show are our own. They are well-reasoned and insightful, and therefore are probably not endorsed by our grant funders or employers. Thanks for listening. On behalf of Kevin King and Pedja Klasinja, we'll catch you next time. Have we even had 10 guests? I don't think we've had 10 guests yet. yet. We're, yet. Yeah, we're, we're it's recording all number of them. Right? Yeah, nine out of 10. Found it in the <laughs> exactly. It's just, I mean, it's an estimate. There's missing data. We're going to have to impute it <laughs> later. Yeah.